This whole two service thing is a, we, we used to do two and three even at the old building. Anybody remember the three services? Anybody ever come to eight o'clock? There was a couple, yeah. There was a couple that used to come to eight o'clock. Man, I didn't even want to go to eight o'clock. Uh, but uh, no, we're glad that you're, you're here this morning. Um, laid out this series we've been working on and then of course, you know, the, the, the course of events and you, you just feel like uh, God, uh, God would like us to do something. Oh, I, know, I wonder why you were waving at me. It's like, hi, hi. Kids, you are dismissed. You can go to kids' church if you want. The people in the green shirts will lead you wherever they want to go. And Tim, uh, you don't get paid this week because that was your job. So. <laughs> so anyway, kids' church is going on. They can go right back those back doors. Thanks for pointing. I wonder, what people wait? Hi, how's it going? <laughs> um. But I, I, I don't know, every April or so, I go through a period where I, uh, I, I pull myself away from television, actually. I do a, about a six-week, sometimes it's even longer, TV fast. It ends uh, on the after the Masters golf tournament. Yes, I'm addicted to the Masters golf tournament. And, and then it goes, this year I think I let it go till uh, July. Uh, early part of July, late June, something like that. And I just didn't, didn't watch television. And you'd be amazed how that just kind of frees you up, how much time you have. And so I have not, I don't, I'm just not into watching a whole lot of television right now. And so it wasn't until about, let's see, Thursday of this week when I turned the television on and was just barraged with all the images that were taking place down in New Orleans. And I'm sure many of you too have been kind of barraged by these images that are going on. And um, I've gotten... Since, since Thursday, I mean, obviously it happened Tuesday when the levee broke, <clears throat> I believe it was Tuesday, that people have been asking us, what are we going to do? And we're going to do something. I don't know what we're going to do yet, though. We're going to do something. If you've been around this church for a long time, you know that in 1997, we knew that we didn't have money and we didn't have any other resources, but we had a lot of people. And we just went up to Grand Forks and worked. So um, I've got a buddy who on, on Saturday night emailed me and just said, I'm going. I'm going down there. So he's down there right now, and I got an email from him this morning saying, could you house, he, me, and other churches around, could you figure out a way to house 10,000 people? So I didn't reply yet, so <laughs> we're adding a new basement fixture, but I don't know if 10 grand are going to fit down there, but, but I don't know what we're going to do yet. We don't know yet, but I do know one thing is that we can pray, and so what I'd like to do is something that we don't do very often at Hope, and so if it makes you uncomfortable, just we, don't, we really don't do this at all, but we'd like to have a little prayer time together, and I have about, I don't know, eight or so pictures here, and I'd like you to pray with your eyes open, and if anyone at all, if you'd like to just pray silently, that's fine. If one person would like to pray out loud at a time, that would be great too. And I'm going to open up, and then as we watch these images, uh, we'll just spend a little time and pray. That's what we can do now. I don't know really what else uh, we can do right now other than giving money to reputable, um, reputable groups. Let's pray, and again, let's pray with our eyes open as you see some of these images and some of the things that are, that are happening. Lord, uh, as I think of what the people down there in New Orleans and Baton Rouge and other areas, Mississippi, Biloxi, other things we've seen. God, it's just, it must be incredibly difficult today especially as they're so used to perhaps many of them fellowshipping in churches and having just a grand old time and, and today is filled with being in a, some sports stadium or some stranger's home or sitting on a bus. And so God, I just ask that right now by your spirit that you would do your work 
And you would come and you would comfort those people in the midst of this tragedy. Look at this image. It reminds me not of something that you'd think of seeing in our country. You'd think of seeing that in a third world country. And I agree. Um, we can become so arrogant on all the, the systems we have and put our trust in those things. So God, we just trust in you. You can work. You can do things with thousands of people at a time. You did it with fishes and loaves. You can do it again. I pray, God, that your miracles would be happening in the aftermath of this storm. Lord, I pray as a church that you would direct us in how you want us to respond. What do you want us to do? I know you want us to do something. I, we just don't know yet exactly what it is that would be most helpful. So we ask, God, that you would lead us as a church. pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, when, when things like this happen, and I know in a lot of ways, we're on the other end of the Mississippi here, right? I mean, it's a long ways down there. And so you, you, you feel like, well, it's kind of out there. You're, 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 you watch it on TV. It's not, it's not something that's really happening to you. And in a lot of ways, you could say that about 9-11, too. That was something that, that happened, and it was out there. It was in New York, and it was Pennsylvania and other areas, but it didn't really involve us. But yet, when you really allow yourself to be hit by these things, it hits very close to home. And um, when that happens... Always, there's something that happens. Wherever your journey is with God, there's always something that goes on with si inside of you. You start to look at God and you say, what's going on here? And I think there's three responses that people can have primarily. The first response is basically that I'm going to do my level best to just bypass this and uh, the old it stinks to be you kind of thing. Sorry about that. And you just kind of move on. You don't really deal with it. And how could a loving, good God who's all-powerful, how can this go on? You don't really deal with that. The second way is very popular in our culture. And it's where you redefine God. After 9-11 happened, I read an article. I'm going to read it for you again today. It's written by uh, Thomas Denani. He used to be the... Uh, uh, Seeker's Diary, if you read that in the Star Tribune, um, he died in 2002, but he used to be the one that would go to different churches and write about them. That's still going on in the Star Tribune on Saturdays. But this was written, or this was published on September 22nd, 11 days after September 11th, 2001. And it was, he actually wrote it before then, but this, that's when it was published. Listen to this article. He says, for reasons I still can't explain, I didn't want to attend a church service last Sunday. So I was relieved when I realized I had been given the wrong time for a service in North Minneapolis that I had planned to attend. I headed home, but something nudged me to follow a sign pointing to the North Mississippi Regional Park. A nearby hidden road wound down to the river's edge, the hum of traffic hushed by trees turning to their autumn colors. The river ran slowly towards its encounter with the gulf 1,000 miles away. I sat on a bench and envied the river. It had direction. I knew where it was, it knew where it was going. The horrible events of the past week hadn't changed its course. Not so for me, not so for most of us. The horrific, the horrific scene of airliners turned into missiles of thousands of the innocent and unsuspecting dead had altered the course of our lives, forcing many of us to admit that there was nothing we could take for granted any longer. Where was God in all this? 
what had happened to the God whose sightings I'd been reporting in this column for four years? Even Billy Graham, American's chaplain, had to say, I don't know. Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell said they knew God was punishing us for the tolerating the gay and lesbian lifestyle, for allowing abortions, for permitting the American Civil Liberties Union to operate. Were they serious? Would God take the lives of thousands of the innocents to make a point? Not my God. But who is my God now? Sitting there on that bench, envying the river's sense of purpose, it was becoming clear that the very nature of God had to be redefined if the notion of God were to make any sense at all. We'd been sidestepping that task for a long time. Did God really permit more than 5,000 people to die and not lift an omnipotent finger to pluck those planes from the sky or flick them just a few feet off their deadly course? Have we given God too much power, power that God doesn't have? We pray that God would spare the life of a child with cancer and the child dies. We pray for safety on our highways, even as a drunk driver broadsides a van filled with the innocent and unsuspecting. War-torn countries pray for peace, but the dying goes on. We've known there were problems with this kind of God, but we've tucked away our questions and our doubts, telling ourselves that God's in his heaven and all's well with the world. The sight of that second plane crashing through the World Trade Center tower exposed that irrational, irrationality once and for all. Disconcerting as it is, there are some things God cannot do. That's not easy to accept, but I would rather worship a God with limited power than a God who refuses to use that omnipotence. Now, I'm going to cut him some slack because he wrote this 11 days after 9-11, okay? And, and, and like I say, he passed away in October of 2002, and so he, he, this is his pain speaking, all right? That's his pain speaking, so I'm not going to parse him and rip him apart. Honestly, when something happens, that's something we think. We think this, this thought. God, that's, that's not who you are, because my God would have done exactly what I wanted to have happen so that I wouldn't experience pain. That, and that's, like it or not, that's the picture a lot of us have of God. And when, when push comes to shove, and when an event happens in your life that pushes it, you, get, you write something like this, that says, I'm not going to worship that kind of, I can't worship that kind of God. You're telling God how he has to be in order for you to worship him. It's really a third option that's most important. The third option when this kind of stuff happens is to simply let God be God. And, and you need a vision of God to help you make it through it. I remember when, when September 11th happened and it was a day or two later that my office manager came up. Her name was Kim Nelson. She came up for the first thing she looks at me. We didn't say anything. She just looks at me and she says, God is on the throne. It's the first thing she says. I needed to hear that. You need to be reminded that God is on the throne when things like like that or like this happen. You need a vision of God that makes sense in spite of human suffering. C.S. Lewis, who if by now, if you don't know, he's one of my heroes. C.S. Lewis um, became a follower of Christ very late in life, was led to Christ actually by J.L. Tolkien, J.R. Tolkien, excuse me, and he then fell in love with an American woman, which if you've ever seen the movie Shadowlands, it describes this relationship and she's a very, you wouldn't think C.S. Lewis would fall in love with this very, you know, very, uh, what's the right word? I want to say coarse, but I don't think she was rude or anything, but she's just an American. 
typical American, and he's an Englishman, and the, all the properties of being an Englishman. In the course of his marriage to her, though, she develops cancer and dies. And C.S. Lewis is faced with a huge issue. Is the God whom I now serve, the God whom I now love, is this God at all responsible for this? What is going on? And he wrote a book called The Problem of Pain. I highly recommend this book. I'm going to boil it down to a paragraph, though. It's this one paragraph that he wrote, and it's this. He says, we can rest contentedly in our sins and in our stupidities, and everyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can even ignore pleasure. But pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciousness, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. God never wastes pain. He is on the throne. Could he have blown and blew that hurricane a little bit? Yes, he could have. He could have, he could have just said like Jesus, be still and it would have been done. Why didn't he do it? I don't know. He does. He does. I'm one of those guys that comes up with a lot of book titles. I don't write any books, but I, I write book titles. And I've got a great book title. You can steal it if you want. The book title is this, The Answer Given to Job. The Answer Given to Job. If you're at all familiar with the book of Job, the book of Job is filled in its 42 chapters with more questions. There's 300 and, I jotted this down, there's 300 and, and 300, 330 questions in the book of Job. 42 chapters, more than any other book of the Bible. There's more questions. What is going on, if you're familiar with what happened in Job? What is going on, God? How can this happen? What, how can, uh, I didn't do anything wrong and all this taking place. And the answer given to Job is what? What's the answer given to Job? Anybody? Simply? That's the answer. Thank you. Job, I'm God and you're not. That's the answer given to Job. And he says, if I tried to explain it to you, you wouldn't get it. So let's just stick with, I'm God and you're not. You'll probably take the rest of your life to figure that one out. I'm God. And you can trust in me in all things. I'm God and you're, and you're not. Right now we're in a series uh, called Our Hearts on Fire. It's a series kind of in between two series. Uh, we finished up the book of Acts. We're going to move to the book of John here in a couple of weeks. And right now we're taking six concepts from the book of Acts and saying, how do we, how do we make them land in our hearts, not just be concepts? And we took, we're taking six major things and trying to deal with them from our hearts. This week, we want to deal with this issue. And the big questions that you, you, uh, you have are, what is God's way of helping us through the fire of life? And what's that resource that we have for strength? And that just lines up exactly what's going on. I planned this a while back, but that lines up. What is your resource to make it through stuff? How'd they do it in the book of Acts? I want to give you a few snapshots in the book of Acts that we're going to springboard from. In Acts chapter 1, they ask the disciples, the apostles, ask Jesus a question. They said, um, are you now going to restore the kingdom to Israel. In other words, we're under Roman rule here, Jesus. If you haven't noticed, you left us once. You died and rose again. And we kind of like this back. 
And Jesus answers them in verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but, so in other words, that's going to happen. But not now. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. You're not going to get the land back now. You're going to get something different. You're going to get the Holy Spirit right now. In Acts chapter 2, you see where this happens. They're just sitting around in this upper room. They were all together in one place. Suddenly, in verse 2, it says, of chapter 2, it says, Suddenly a sound like a blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Something happened that day that changed the course of human history. The Spirit of God came and moved on those people. And from that point on, everyone who confesses the name of Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, the Spirit of God enters them and changes you. And you can see how this happens right away in chapter 4. They heal this crippled guy, which is an incredible thing. This guy asks for money. They say, don't have any money, but tell you what, get up, take up your mat and walk. And he walks, and they get in trouble for it. I don't know if they didn't have a crippling license, healing crippling license, or I don't know what the deal is. If it's Minneapolis, you'd get, definitely get in trouble with that. But anyway, another story. Um, and they get in trouble with the authorities. They call them in, and it's, it's, this is big-time trouble. They ask him, by what power or what name did you do this? Here it is. What's going on? Then it says in verse 8 of chapter 4, Then Peter, and it says, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, and he gives them this explanation, rulers and elders of the people, if we're being called to count today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all the people of Israel is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Now, that took some guts. They're facing certain death, and that little phrase there, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, is not just a, you know, Peter wearing a blue shirt. No, it's more important than that. Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, opens his mouth, and out comes this, basically, you can kill me now, or you can kill me later, but I'm going to say this. They let him go. They let, it's amazing. They let him go. And in, in the last part of, of chapter 4, it says, On their release, Peter and John went back to their own people and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised, raised their voices together in prayer to God, and they pray this prayer, which is just amazing. They're going to be in trouble with the authorities all the time, and they pray this prayer. The prayer says this, Sovereign Lord, you've made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. And here's what that he quotes David. Why do, you, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in the city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you, whom you anointed. They did what your power and your will has decided beforehand had happened. They're acknowledging, God, you're in control of everything, even, even the death of Christ. Now, Lord, consider their threats and protect us so nothing really bad happens to us. No, just the opposite. Consider their threats and enable us to speak your word with great boldness. Stretch out your hand to heal and perform miraculous signs and wonders through the name of your holy servant Jesus. 
After they prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. They're not the phrases again. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and they spoke the word of God boldly. In Acts chapter 6, you see another account of this. I won't, I won't go into it just for time's sake, but it says that they had to pick someone to help out with waiting on tables. And they had to pick someone. They picked Stephen. Stephen in verse 5 says uh, they were pleased, they pleased with this guy and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. So even for a guy just to be, be the administrator of the distribution of food, they wanted to make sure he was full of the Holy Spirit. And if you know how Stephen dies, it's very clear that he dies a death and he's very full of this power source of God to make it through a horrible stone, stoning death. Okay, now that raises two big questions then. At least in my mind. First question is, what in the world does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? What does that mean? And the second one is, how do I get me some? Right? What does it mean, and how can I get me some so my life is different? There's only one other place in the entire New Testament, other than the Gospels and Acts, where this phrase, filled with the Holy Spirit, is used, and it's in the book of Ephesians. Paul's writing to the people of Ephesus, to the people of Ephesus, and he writes them, and he talks about this issue. And it's in ver chapter 5, verse 18. And I want to kind of give you the sandwich, the context, which it's in, so you understand what's going on. But we're going to mainly hone in on Ephesians 5, 18. I want to read this through, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about what's the, each side of verses, uh, verse 18. Starting in verse 15. It says, Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, we're going to hone in on verse 18. Don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. But I want to kind of give you the context here first. First thing he says is, be careful how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Clearly here, Paul is saying, redeem your time wisely. Think of it like a market or a store where you browse and you make wise decisions on what you're buying. Buy the time carefully. That's what it literally means here. Buy or redeem. Buy your time carefully. Use it wisely. You only get so much. I'm looking at people, most of you are under 41. There's a few of you that aren't, and I won't make you raise hands, but you will be 41 before you know it. I am 41. And it's amazing how fast it goes from 18 to 41. I thought I was going to be 18 forever. And you, you're, just, you're just not. I know, that's a really radical statement. But it, it just goes on. And it's fast. Use it wisely. Every decision you make has a trajectory to it. Every decision you make has a later implication. If you decide to fudge on something really small, then you fudge on maybe your taxes. Then maybe you fudge and you know, my marriage vows aren't that big of a deal. Ah, you know, God isn't really going to care if I cheat in my business. Every decision you make, every fudge you make, is, it's a trajectory. It'll take you a direction, away from where you want to go. Don't do it. Buy the time, 
by the time wisely. What Paul's saying here is live consistently with who you are. Don't live foolishly. You only get one life to live. Live it to the max. Squeeze every bit of life out of what's been given to you. That only happens when you discern who God is and you follow him wholeheartedly. Now, let's move on here. That's kind of what he's saying. He's saying in all the context of this, now he's going to say, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. We'll come back to that. And he's, he's going to give you four signs of what that looks like. Someone who is like that, what do they look like? And they're all I-N-G words used in this passage. First thing is in verse 19, it says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual talks, uh, spiritual speech, spiritual songs, excuse me. First thing is there's, there's a Godwardness to their speech. If, if you're filled with the Spirit, something will happen here and you just, you just can't stop talking about God to others. Just talk with other people and you talk in all these different ways. Just, it's just, just out it comes. You talk about God. Then it says, second thing is singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart. There's an element of worship in your life. You're a worshipful person. Uh, when, when you come to Hope on a Sunday morning, this is a worship celebration or worship service. This is the hors d'oeuvre of, of 24-7 worship. Worship is life. Life is worship. It shouldn't just be when you sing or when you, everything. Are you, are you in the context of living a life of worship? Third thing is, and this is the radical one, it says, giving thanks always and for everything. Uh, don't, don't, don't go too quick over that. Giving thanks always and for everything. If you're filled, what this passage is saying is, if you're filled with the Spirit, you don't have to say, God, you have to explain to me why a hurricane hit. You have to explain to me why planes go into buildings. I will not worship you until you explain that to me. When you're filled with the Spirit, you say, God, I thank you that I have no clue what you're doing here, but you do. That's, that's a sign of being filled with the Spirit. You're able to say, thank you, God, for, it, for things in your life that are messed up. But you say, God, you, I know that you're going to do, you're a God of order, you're a God of control, and right now things don't seem that way, but I'm looking at it from my perspective, and you're looking at it from a lot bigger perspective. All I see right now is the one tile of the mosaic that looks black, and you've backed up from the whole thing, and you can see the whole beauty of it. And I'm going to trust you on that, and not just what I'm seeing, because right now all I'm seeing is this tile that's black. That's filled with the Spirit. When you're able to do that, and say, God, I'm just going to trust you on that, that's being filled with the Spirit. The fourth thing he says here is then, you submit to one another, you're submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. You put Jesus in such a high pedestal. You put Jesus in such a high place in your life. You revere him so high that you respect other people. You give them respect. Now that, that's what it looks like. You're walking around, what does it smell like? It smells like those four things. That's what, but that still leaves the question, how does a person get filled with it or what really is it? Okay, so it's a great analogy here. This works for many college students and it'll work this Friday night. Very good in all the dorms. Very good. What does it say? Go, go to the next slide there. What does it say? It says, do not get drunk with wine. Now, my, when I was a freshman, and I wasn't a follower of Jesus just at that point, so let's just make that. Our slogan on our floor, and however it happened, I wasn't a crazy partier, but uh, a little bit. Uh, our slogan was, get drunk, break stuff. 
That's what it was written in the bathroom walls, and that's what they want. They wanted to actually make T-shirts that said that. So, you, you, you want a good analogy of this, just go into any of the dorms. I lived in Frontier for five years, which, uh, holy cow, is a special place in heaven for me for that. But, uh, what is that going to look like this Friday night? It says, don't get drunk with wine, for that is, or some versions say that leads to debauchery, it leads to living that is totally different. So let's just stay in this analogy, because it's a great analogy. What does it mean to be drunk? Think of the effects that alcohol has on a person. You get, you get this person that's really shy and all of a sudden, they just talk nonstop. Or, or they're uh, someone who normally has good sense. They do things that are, are just make totally no sense whatsoever in the physical world. Let me give you an example. Friday night. I, I'm just getting ready to, 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 to go to sleep, and uh, I live a block and a half from one of our finer establishments in town, and uh, I'm just getting, uh, the fan is on in my room too, and Carol and I, all of a sudden we hear this, smack, and if you've ever been in an accident, you know that sound, because it's like, oh my goodness, that was crunching metal right there, so I throw on, uh, throw on some clothes and, and go run outside and go take a look, and uh, there's this car parked, has clipped a light post, Light post looks like a toothpick been snapped. The car is up in, it went through all the shrubbery and is up into the yard. Has, didn't hit the house, missed the house, but it's right up in there. And there's a bunch of neighbors. I know most of my neighbors, but not some of the ones from this block, and so I didn't know who was who. But it became very quickly obvious the three people that were in that car. Very quickly. <clears throat> they were over there talking uh, extremely loud. And by the way, alcohol does something to your hearing, I think. <laughs> because they're talking very loud, like... Like, nobody else can hear them, you know? No, no, I wasn't driving. Uh, another guy was driving, and he, rode away, he, he drove away, or he ran away. That's it. He ran away. We don't know who, but we never, um, no, his name was, what's his name? They're getting together and making their story. They're huddled over here before the cops come. They're making their story up, so they're all on the same side. His name was Demetrius, but they're saying it so loud the rest of us can hear him. His name was Demetrius, yeah, that's it. So, as soon as the cop shows up, I'm sitting there going, I didn't see anything, so I can't verify that there wasn't a fourth person, but it's pretty obvious to me. This guy comes out of the bar and comes down to where we're, where we're staying, uh, by the car. And he was a guy, a patron at the bar, and he says, yeah, I saw that car take off, out of the lot. So this car, in three quarters of a block, got enough speed up to, to and then what the deal is, is, they thought at 55 miles an hour, you can take a 90-degree corner, which makes a sense after, you know, six lining kugels. But it, it doesn't make any sense physically, because that's exactly the sound I heard was, smack, the ert I thought was brakes. I think the ert was this Mazda 626 on two wheels as it was trying to go around that corner. It, it seemed to make sense at the time, but... The alcohol had worked in such a way that they were, they were not only getting into accidents, but they were acting very foolishly. And the cop, you know, bless, you've got to pray for cops. Let me tell you, oh, can you imagine? What a life. Uh, this this uh, cop, you know, would have none of it. First thing, who owns the car? I do. But I wasn't, you know, the guy can barely stand up, but I wasn't driving. First thing, you know, okay, why don't you have a seat in the back of the car? So that's where he's sitting. Alcohol makes you do stuff, any drugs makes you do stuff 
that you wouldn't normally do. It controls you, it consumes you. You just, you end up being a different person. That's why uh, the Hindus say it's not what goes in, but what comes out is the problem. Well, I think there's a lot of truth to that. The, the issue is it's controlling you. Now, what does it mean then to be filled with the Spirit? That's the analogy. The analogy says don't get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. What does it mean to be drunk or excuse me, what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means simply this. It means to belly up to the bar of God and drink your fill. It means allowing something, and in this case, someone, to take control of your life. It's relinquishing control. It's being consumed by alcohol. You ever stop and think for a minute, what's the legal, what's the legal law? If you get pulled over now, you get a DUI at what? 0.08. 0.08. That's 0.08 percent. That's eight ten thousandths of your blood. Eight ten thousandths of it is alcohol. Dude, just think if eight ten thousandths of your blood was controlled by the Holy Spirit, or more. Just think of it. Oh, you know, I'm only five percent committed. Five percent. That is a lot compared to 0.08. Now, I'm not indicating don't be more controlled, but I'm just saying. It's, it's, it's not so much how much you're relinquishing as what you're relinquishing it to that will control you. The difference here is that the Holy Spirit is not a substance. The Holy Spirit is a person. Just like the Father and the Son, like our song Danny sang, the Spirit, it's a person. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in a book, he was a famous, uh, famous preacher, said in a book he wrote about the Holy Spirit. He says, the way to approach this, it seems to me, is to remind ourselves that the Holy Spirit is a person. The Holy Spirit is not just an influence, not the force. So many seem to talk about being filled with the Spirit as if the Holy Spirit was some kind of liquid. They talk about having an empty vessel, an empty jug, and having the Spirit poured in. That is entirely wrong because it forgets that the Holy Spirit is a person. He is not a substance, not a liquid, not a power like electricity. We all tend to fail, fall into this error. We even tend to refer to the Holy Spirit as it, referring that the Holy Spirit is the third person in the Holy Blessed Trinity. It's to engage and say, risen Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, come and invade my life. So, practically speaking, how does someone become then filled with the Holy Spirit? And I'm just going to follow the analogy. First thing is you've got to go to the bar. Go to the bar. Get close to God through His Word, through prayer, through people. Whatever it takes, just go to the bar. Find ways to get around God through His Word primarily. Second thing is, Drink your fill. Ask the Holy Spirit. Ask God, the Holy Spirit, to invade you, to consume you, to relinquish all your control, that, that anything else you're trying to put inside that would control you, say, you know what, I'm letting that go. I'm not going to let those things control me like alcohol. I'm going to let them go. And Holy Spirit, God, I want you to control me. And the third thing is simply get drunk. Right? Don't get drunk with wine. It's pleasing about you. But be filled with the Spirit. That's the analogy. Get drunk. Don't just quote that much of the, yeah. Um, drink your fill so that you're drunk and that it controls you. And you look like those four things we talked about. Basically what I want you to do is Christianity is not a worldview. Christianity is 
a, a relationship with the risen Christ. I want you to lick your fingers and stick them in the outlet of God. That's what, that's what Christianity is about. It's not about, oh, I understand how it all works together. Yeah, that's part of it. More of it's this relationship where you say, Holy Spirit, come and change me from the inside out. I relinquish control to you. So close this morning, let me ask you this. Are you drunk on the Holy Spirit? Are you willing to go to the bar? Are you willing to drink your fill? Are you willing to get drunk? This table before you is the only way it can happen. I'm not saying through communion. I'm saying through the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection for your sins. This table before us that we're going to experience through our time of worship and communion is the way that you can have communion with, with God. The bread represents his body, which was broken for you. The cup represents his blood shed on that cross to pay the penalty for your sins so you don't have to. He will take it. During a time of worship, I'm going to invite you at that, uh, to any time when the band sings, you can come forward and you can rip off a piece of bread, take a cup. You can either drink it here or you can drink it at where you're seated. That's fine. There'll be people down front and in the back and upstairs. I think we have a station or two. You can go up there and, and people will pray for you. Anything at all. If you have anything you'd like to ask them to pray for, they would love to pray for you about that. We practice open communion at Hope. You don't have to be a member of this church. You don't have to be a member of any church. We just ask that you're a follower, follower of Jesus. Let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we just pray for your power in our lives. We pray that you would, in fact, electrify us and change us and transform us to be singing and thanking and submitting and people who speak to one another in right ways, that, that, that would just flow out of us. Holy Spirit, we pray you'd invade this room during our time of worship as we place you on the throne. Holy Spirit, I pray for every single person here, and I know that most likely if I were to sit down and talk with every one of them, they would have issues right now in their lives, struggles. And I pray that they would just allow you to be God at the throne and be able to give you thanks in spite of everything. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would heal in this room. We've seen you do remarkable things. We pray for that. Holy Spirit, you can come and you can heal. You can move in lives. You can transform lives. You can take relationships that are all busted up and you can make them well again. So Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd come. Jesus, we thank you so much for what this table represents our access to you. There's no other way we could receive forgiveness of sins without a perfect sacrifice. God himself, the God-man, Jesus Christ. And I thank you for that. I pray now through our, our meal together that you would uh, work in our hearts to change us to be the people you want us to be. We pray in Jesus' name.